0: The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. We've got uh, a guest that's been highly anticipated by me anyway, and I'm sure others as well. Bruce Fenton will be joining us to talk about ancient aliens and physical and genetic evidence of uh, visitation. In fact, uh, also genetic manipulation of the human genome. In fact, maybe these aliens were responsible for making us what we are, creating a species with a large brain. Well, sometimes a large brain. When you watch the news, I'm not so sure that's always true. But either way, it's going to be a great discussion. Looking forward to it. Uh, tomorrow night, we'll be talking with Ben Stewart about the dangers of 5G. And, of course, Friday, Booze, Brews, and Bros will be on hand for your amusement, hopefully. And then I'm not sure Saturdays is always a bit of a crapshoot. So a uh, great uh, way to wind up the week here. A lot of good stuff. Welcome to everybody who's in our chat rooms. If you're in YouTube, hello. If you're in our Twitch chat room, hello. Make sure that you subscribe and or follow to both and share them. Please share them. I know you're all looking at this flip in my hair. I, this, <laughs> I, I'm putting pushing my hair back all the time because it's in my face. You know, we're talking on a, about almost six months without a haircut here. And because I'm doing that, it's creating this really weird forehead flip effect that I can't calm down in time for the show. So you're just going to have to deal with it. You're just going to have to deal. Hey, uh, Iowa, thank you for that subscription, by the way. Um, Okay, so uh, like I said, we've got a great show for you tonight and great stuff coming up. Um, I also want to make sure that you know where the YouTube channel is. Go to YouTube.com. Search for JV Johnson when you find it. Please subscribe. Yeah, Fuzz, there's no flip in your hair. (laughs) Um, if you want to find us on Twitch, which is where our weekend programs will end up residing, at least the live versions of them, because they're very, very different. That's a very big departure from what we do during the week. Um, Twitch is just JV Johnson on Twitch. Very easy to find. So um, appreciate you doing all that. Also find us on Facebook, Beyond Reality Radio, and my page is JV Johnson. So there's all the promotion stuff I had to do. Had to get it out of the way um, because it's part of the deal here. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash That's J-O-H-A-W. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We've got Bruce Fenton joining us. Also, his wife, Daniela, will be with us as well. We'll be talking about all sorts of things, including ancient aliens and physical and genetic evidence of visitation long ago. What does that mean for us? How does that help us understand who we are? Uh, looking forward to this discussion. Bruce, Daniela, thank you so much for being here. Great to have you on the show tonight.
1: It's um, really awesome to be here. I appreciate yeah, it's it. great
2: to be here. Thank you.
0: So my first question, I guess we can take this one at a time here. Uh, How did you get your start in researching, writing about, and actually even being curious about so many of these, what we would consider to be either fringe or strange topics?
1: I remember it as being uh, directly coming out of um, a situation with my grandmother where she used to have these Little cards, and I to remember, there was these good collectible cards, and they would come free with boxes of tea leaves that she used to buy. And and in one set of them, it was Unexplained Mysteries of the World. And you got like, a, you know, there was a free book where you had to sort of stick them in there, but each card had a picture, like, say, the Great Pyramid or Yetis or something like that. And then on the other side, there would be, you know, a little basic story. And um, I think there was about 40 of them. So they really they ranged across all of the topics you know from uh, psychic phenomena ghosts and stuff all the way through to the more physical things like lake monsters the, the whole lot so it was a kind of a um, an introduction to a, the wide range of strangeness and I was about 11 or 12 at the time so so it's fairly early and I I just got really fascinated with it and over time that grew into you know more serious obviously at 11 or 12 you're not going to do a, a lot of studying on it but certainly you know over the years it became more of a passion and i suppose early 20s probably i would say i was starting to research it a lot more in depth but um, yeah i've always had a, you know, quite a broad interest in these topics to be honest i think my situation is a bit different to danielle as she can explain her well before before
0: we before we go <laughs> to danielle i just want to follow sure. up on something you said there it's really yeah. interesting how we have these I don't know what they would be called, but uh, maybe they're even synchronistic moments where we we discover something. And I cannot imagine how excited I would have been if uh, my parents or grandparents had uh, boxes of tea leaves coming in that had these really interesting cards Mm -hmm. in them. I mean, I remember seeing articles about things like Oak Island or watching the show In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy or seeing Mm -hmm. uh, Chariot of the Gods. You know, these are very important moments in in my upbringing that created my curiosity. And it's interesting Mm -hmm. when we can go back those and really point at those as being a source for much of this
1: yeah exactly yeah you mean at the time you wouldn't really realize it would change the course of your life in any way but obviously these these exposures that we have when we're young you know they do influence us towards these directions and you know now obviously it becomes a passion but at the time that's kind of your doorway into it and you know first you have to hear from somewhere somehow that there are these ancient mysteries and there, there is a, a whole category of unexplained phenomena out there that you know so and as a young person you sort of realize that not everything is known you know that, that there right. are things that you can go out and make discoveries as well which is of course is a you know gives you a, an angle in as well that you know you might be able to actually solve a mystery which is kind of a cool aspect of this
0: and daniela you um you offer psychic services you've got some psychic abilities how did this all start for you
2: Um, I guess it was always there because I thought it was normal. I thought everybody had it and from a very, very young age, I had a lot of weird things happen. And I used to sort of try and talk to my parents about it, but they would be very dismissive, or they would just try and sort of shut me down. And I thought, well, there has to be something wrong with me. Um, Remember sort of going to the library and, you know, looking up books about the paranormal, about ghosts, about, you know, anything that I could find that could just help me connect the dots to what was happening with me, I would, um, I, I guess, mediumship, for me was always there from a very young age, Um, contact also from a very young age. So, I mean, you know, I remember being a toddler and seeing things in my room and having astral um, travel experiences probably from (laughs) around the age of one um, and things like that. So, I mean, this is something that's always, no matter how far I've tried to push it away from It's always been coming at me. Um, It's something that I've not been able to successfully disconnect myself from. And, you know, I've got people saying to me, oh, you know, it must be such a gift. I'm like, yes, it can be a gift. It can be a curse. Um, Because it's almost like leading two different lives that seem to be blended together. But for me, it's always been a very interesting journey. And I think it's something that, you know, you just keep learning as you go.
0: And I find it also fascinating that, as a child, when you're growing up with these sensitivities and the abilities, you just think it's normal. And in fact, I, I'm very curious as to how many yeah. kids are sensing that and, and they're, they're being educated out of believing that it's happening to them or they're being told that's not real. Don't pay attention to that. Therefore, it gets it gets, you know, pushed into the recesses of their minds or their bodies or whatever it happens to be instead of being embraced.
2: That's right. And I'm. Um... Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I remember for myself particularly, you know, trying to find answers and not finding them and then actually thinking there was something wrong with me or something wrong was happening to me or what was around my reality was sort of distorted from other people's because I didn't see other people sort of like behaving the way I did and and that kind of thing. And I thought, well, you know, and, it, and it's sort of like it sets you apart from everybody else. And it, that's where you start to have that divide of feeling that you are different from other people. And there's other things going on that, you know, may not then be happening to everybody else so I guess that's where you have the division and um, things just begin to change your life in a very dramatic way and obviously you're looking for answers and as you get older you start you know trying to connect with other people that are having similar experiences whether it be paranormal whether it be contact um, or any of those um, areas and you know you're trying to constantly build up your knowledge so that later you know if you need to help other people, if you need to sort of like, you know, even with your own children, um, explain what happens and how it feels and that type of thing that, you know, it's it's something that I think is really important, you know, as 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 a base for parents to be aware that kids that are gifted shouldn't shut them down, but should sort of, I'm not saying like completely embrace it, but don't close them down. At least let them explore that area and if they need help to find them the right help.
0: I think that's great advice. Did you two meet if you don't mind me asking a personal question because of your interest in these topics
1: actually yes we did actually um we we met back in about was it 2005, 2005 and at the time we were both working on a, a website called kasamba which i don't know if you're familiar with where they have you might have seen their ads you know they seem to advertise everywhere but they do online readings and other like on, online speaking services. Uh, we were both registered on there as as sort of tarot readers, and funnily enough, <laughs> Daniela actually asked for a reading from me,
2: yeah.
1: uh, and that's how we first connected. We became sort of friends. I mean, we didn't have you know a relationship at that time, but we became friends, and over the years kept a bit in touch. Um, but we didn't physically meet each other until 2012, b- the beginning of 2012. So we'd actually yeah directly through working in the psychic services industry, funnily enough.
0: Uh, I know that as a as a radio professional is really what I've done all my life. Plus, I've had this interest in the paranormal and the and the curious as well. And fortunately for me, those two things have been able to be combined in what I do here. But as a radio professional, one of the times I get most nervous is when another radio professional is listening to what I'm doing. When If you're a tarot <laughs> card reader, and you have another tarot card reader ask you for a reading, does it make you a
1: little nervous? Uh, yeah, for me, and particularly because I would say I was... A bit novice, sadly. I mean, I had a, a little bit of a gift for it, but Daniela is definitely more of the natural, as she's explained. I mean, she's had this phenomenon all her life. So, and you know, you've got someone who's asking for reading, who's got hundreds of five-star reviews on their profile. You know, and you've got sort of, you know, your 10 clients that you, you've done. So, yeah, there was definitely a little bit of pressure there. Um, so I, I was quite glad when she was telling me that it seemed to make sense. So I was telling her and it was of some use. You <laughs> he know. were actually very uh, accurate. <laughs> so, he, was, but, yeah. he was very accurate.
0: Okay, well, that that helps. Uh, Daniela, you, you still do tarot card readings? I know you offer a bunch of different services.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I do um, mediumship. uh, I do past life regressions and um, I use gypsy cards. I don't read tarot because I don't, I don't connect with them very well. Um, And I read playing cards and sort of like blend, you know, the services of readings and mediumship together because often one thing will overlap the other one. So um, yeah, I still provide those services for clients.
0: Let me ask you about the attitude of um, the UK for things like that, whether it's psychic or medium services. Do you have a sense of how it compares to the attitude here in the United States? I mean, there are a lot of people that embrace it, obviously, but there are also a lot of people that, uh, you know, won't give it the time of day.
2: Um, Strangely enough, I mean, one of the reasons we sort of came out towards the UK is because I found that people were more open perhaps more to mediumship and to the paranormal than when we were in Australia. In Australia, I think, um, for example, it's something that's just a growing industry, but in, in the UK, for example, that you've got the spiritualist churches, and it seems to be a very established series um, of, um, places where you can sort of go and, you know, have these services. And it's just a very matter of fact thing where, you know, you, you could be walking down the street and you could be passing a spiritualist. You wouldn't know them by looking at them. I mean, you know, very normal people and they're very serious about their work. They're very serious about, um, connecting, um, you know, with loved ones that have passed. They're very, very good at giving their messages. They're very natural. They don't ask any questions. They just give you information, um, so, I mean, surprisingly, I found it very um, welcoming um, to have people around like that. Um, and, I mean, in the U.S., I guess it's it's it must be a very, you know, popular industry and people must be very dependent um, on psychic readings, you know, because it, you it, as I have clients a lot from Australia um, and uh, I, I get a lot of people, you know, just asking me about very random things. Yeah. So, I mean, um, it, I, I guess it's I guess it must be like the UK must be very similar to the US. Yeah. Um, I think there might aspect. be I so think I there think... might
0: be a little more acceptance in the UK of a lot of this. I know that from when we talk about ghost topics, uh, particularly I mm-hmm. used to be the publisher of, of, a, of a very popular paranormal magazine. And we get a lot of interaction from the UK about our ghost. Topic. We get a lot from the United States as well, but it seemed like it was more entrenched in the psyche of the minds of, of folks in the UK. Bruce, do you find the same thing when it comes to alien or UFO topics? Is is the acceptance the same?
1: Um, I don't think so. I think, again, where Danielle has touched on it there is that we have a very old and established spiritualist church network around the country, so I think that's why um, that, that topic is kind of accepted. Now, of course, that doesn't mean everyone believes it, but I think people are used to the idea that you have a spiritualist church in your town, right? So... So that's kind of normalized the existence of spiritualism and paranormal and life after death. You know, whether people believe it or not, they're aware that there's a lot of people who take it seriously and are, uh, certainly do believe it's real, right? But the, the alien UFO thing, I think that's still more um, controversial. And I think in the US, you have more acceptance in the alien UFO area, definitely, in my view. Like the conferences and stuff are all there. Most of the TV shows are from there. And when I talk to people... Here, you're more likely to find greater skepticism about this sort of ET UFO topic. So I think perhaps we're opposites on those, you know, that maybe we have more acceptance of the spiritualism and that side, but the, the U.S. has more acceptance of the UFO and, you know, alien and contact side.
0: I find that interesting for a couple of reasons. One is um, you've had some very uh, notorious uh um encounters, alien type encounters or UFO encounters uh, throughout uh, the UK. plus you've got a uh, you know, kind of the epicenter of crop circles. And then you've got things like Stonehenge, which in uh, many people believe have an alien connection. Uh, it seems like that would help fuel some of the interest, at least, if not uh, belief in some of this stuff.
1: Well, you think but I, I'll give you an example of what makes you aware of the difference between the US and the UK is that you know obviously we've had all these cases, you know, the Navy, UFO case, and obviously in the US there was like huge amounts of media coverage for that, right? And then here the BBC had like a one paragraph um, thing on their website saying, you know, the US <laughs> acknowledges UFO and, uh-huh. uh, and hardly any, you know, hardly any of the press here made as much of a big thing about it. You know, it was way more US. Um, press that covered that, you know, there's a bit more of a, okay, well, yeah, you know, that happened, but let's move on. You know, it does seems it does seem there is a more of a dismissive media attitude here. And obviously the media shapes the public response. So it's still a bit, I think it's still treated as a bit more silly season here than it is over there. And again, that's why I think we have that problem. If the media was to, to take it all a bit more, you know, seriously, um, or at least not so jokingly, I think the population would feel more comfortable with the topic instead of feeling like, oh, am I making a fool of myself if I talk about this? You know, that's that, that is still there. That kind of hang up, I think, is still in the public, you know, eye.
0: I have to ask you about your opinion of uh, what the US military has recently said. Now, for those of you who haven't heard of what's been going on you you're probably living under a rock somewhere because the uh navy, some navy pilots filmed some objects from their jet fighters that uh were anomalous couldn't really explain the way they were moving and the speed they were moving at there's actually some pilots commenting about those very facts during the recordings and they were they were leaked basically to the public at one point um, the U.S. military didn't really address it uh, and and kind of uh, dismissed it until recently they came forward and said, yes, these are objects that were filmed, and yes, we cannot explain them. We don't have an explanation. Therefore, they are truly unidentified. That's a real departure from history for the U.S. military, isn't it,
1: Bruce? Absolutely. You know, it's um, a funny sort of an admission that, that these are real objects they encounter, and that they, you know, they are invading airspace that is considered controlled, um, and that they have these anomalous capabilities. And it was sort of an admission of something that those of us that have had an interest in the topic already kind of know, right? But um, it was a big deal in that it's finally, you know, someone in a senior position in the military saying, well, okay, yes, you know, this is happening. And that we got, you know, the details that they're dealing with, you know, got an object that went from 80,000 feet to sea level in what seems to be under a second, you know, now yeah. uh, whether it was actually, there's questions over, you know, whether it was traveling in relativistic terms or whether it's some sort of teleportation, even, you know, it was so, so fast. Um, so there's clearly something there, which is way beyond what we would imagine is supposed to be next generation aircraft, right? Because, you know, this for us would tear apart any drones or planes that, you know, in the, in the known, you know, <laughs> listings for any military in the world, right? So so definitely it was a big deal. But we do know that the Navy have been a bit sneaky because they haven't released the sort of surveillance data, you know, from the various other platforms that were there recording, you know, which have got additional information. Like, Because they would have been monitoring any emissions from this craft, you know, any sounds, any radiation. You know, there's all sorts of stuff that can be done. And they have the capabilities. So while they they have acknowledged that this is, you know, kind of unexplained and anomalous, what they haven't done is released the data that might inform us what exactly this is, which is kind of a funny thing. The press haven't really pushed them on that either. They've just kind of accepted, hey, they've said it's UFOs. But it's a shame that nobody with the power to do so hasn't pushed them to say, okay, well, what other data do you have?
0: As this stuff gets released and there's more and more conversation about it, first of all, I want to ask you, among the, the ufology or uh, the the what we'll call scientific community that studies such phenomena that you're involved with, do you hear any chatter about some of these explanations like, oh, it could be some kind of um, heat uh, reflection or it could be some type of other physics-based answer but not a craft? Are you hearing any of that?
1: Yeah, certainly. I've I've seen a few um, attempts to explain it in that way, you know, down to could it be a conventional aircraft at a distance, you know, and it could it be you know, even some suggestions, you know, could it be a bird, you know, some of these, one of the videos and, you know, could it be this and that and the other. And I mean, and it's right in a way to try that. But I think that those explanations have failed in my view. That they don't explain all of the observed characteristics, um, and also the pilots, of course, and the other the other people there, you know, the other naval um, personnel, have said that you know not only was that that encounter, which was direct, physical, you know, the people saw it with their own eyes as well as with equipment, um, but they also point out that they was they were tracking a fleet of these anomalous objects right. on the on the well the various platforms of equipment, right? So they were tracking a whole fleet of these for several days. And and that bit gets missed sometimes in those sceptical arguments because, you know, it's one thing to say you make a mistake about one encounter, right? But it's very different if they're telling you, well, hang on, we were tracking the fleet of these for days. You know, that that's hard to write off as some kind of misidentification, you know, because obviously this is the top equipment in the world at the time. And you're in some of the most controlled airspace off the coast of the US where there's islands with listening posts on and there's you know a whole flotilla of ships and planes and submarines you know i mean there's there's a point you've got to say hang on you know could they really get it that wrong and like mistakenly say that there's a whole fleet of anomalous crafts there with all of that equipment monitoring i mean it's starts to stretch the credibility of skepticism
0: yeah that starts to make it hard to explain away but i also want your opinion on the paradigm shift that seems to be taking place right now, when you've got governments and militaries uh, starting to slowly drip, drip, drip uh, admissions and um, acknowledgements, do you think we're in the in an age of a transition here of of a position on this stuff?
1: Yes, I think there's a transition in the position. let's you say, I don't think it's um, the kind of full disclosure that a lot of a lot of people in the UFO type community hoping for, you know, where you get, I guess, you know, the president or, you know, a top military advisor kind of comes out and i don't know goes on i'm not sure they go on fox news and they just tell you by the way you know for 70 years we've had a secret and you know the aliens have been here and look here's the (laughs) crashed saucer in the you know in the hangar and the pictures and so you know i'm I'm sure yeah that's something that yeah be wonderful if it happened in some respects i mean you'd want to know even then why they they were coming out with it but um and it if they have all that as well, it's a question mark. But let's just say they do. It just seems like a very unlikely thing to occur. But what I think we do, what we are seeing is more of a, a transition towards acceptance that there are things up there moving around that are not understood. But I, I don't think we're going to get to you know, these are the aliens. But they may well start with this thing of that, well, there's unknown phenomena, you know, that we need to look into. Um, so it's sliding a bit more towards that um, and also, I think that is to do with partly to do with the recognition that the future is going to involve these unmanned aerial platforms as well, with these, which are some hypersonic missiles as well. And, you know, I think there is a bit of a transition. And the reason why I think this is happening is less about recognizing, you know, any possible aliens or interdimensional beings, but instead, what they have is a strange scenario where they've created. This environment where UFOs shouldn't be reported—you know, people were losing their jobs. You know, pilots would lose their jobs, uh, airmen would be grounded as being mentally ill if they report these. And you know, there was a culture of secrecy, a culture of denial and dismissal. Uh, the problem with that now is that enemy nations are creating hypersonic missiles and aerial platforms that are unusual, you know, with these mm-hmm. unmanned drones and with hypersonic drones. And the problem is, like, if you are, let's just say, like a, hypersen- hyper, like a hypothetical example, if you are an airman, you know, and you're in a base somewhere in a little nowhere, and you've been told to keep, an, you know, you, there's certain things you're supposed to keep an eye out for, you're protecting the skies and all the rest of it, and you see a disk object come flying in at hypersonic speeds and fly over, Would you report it? And and this this has become a real issue because those people would be scared that if they report it, they might never have career progression, right? Right. Or they might even be dropped out of the military. Right. So what if, let's say China creates a saucer-shaped drone, right, with the hypersonic capabilities and with weapons on board, and flies that over U.S. bases and nobody reports it because because they think, I'm going to get told that I'm crazy. Now, you've, so they've actually, through this, the, the activities over the last 70 years, they've created a situation where, uh, you know, an enemy, a potential enemy could invade parts of the U.S. simply by replicating the UFO phenomena. And I think that's why we're seeing this shift, because they're realizing, hang on a minute, there's loads of these unmanned aerial platforms now and drones, and we've been telling our whole military force, don't report, you know, strange phenomena that's flying around. Right. So that's incredibly dangerous because, you know, what if something like that happens and you have a Russian, you know, drone that comes in and it's spying and nobody reports it because they think they'll be called called crazy.
0: That's an excellent point. Um, very well made point. I, I'm going to just switch, shift gears just a little bit here to get Daniela in. I want to know, Daniela, sure. and maybe you've been asked this before. Maybe you haven't. It Seems like a bit of an odd question, but I think it's an important one. Is there a connection between psychic phenomena and alien and UFO phenomena. Do you do do you know of anybody, or do you, you yourself have any uh, sensitivities to um, alien visitation that maybe others don't?
2: Um, I guess it comes in with the mediumship. Um, okay. When you are working on that higher frequency as opposed to using cards, which is a much lower frequency, when you raise your vibration and you're using the mediumship, um, you can actually tap into the consciousness um, of these beings because there's been examples where I was doing um, some mediumship work for someone and apart from bringing in two people that she Wanted to receive messages from. Um, I did tap into a consciousness that she'd been working with um, of an entity that was behind. Um, pyramids in Egypt but it was of an alien type and this was like two years ago Um, apart from the psychic um, aspect I guess more like the mediumship aspect where you can tap into their frequency and you can you know have contact with them with this um, it's also the shamanic part that I think overlaps more strongly Um, and having that knowledge of of shamanism and having worked with, you know, shamanic plants and um, using the mediumship in combination with this, it has helped, um, I guess, tap into that even stronger um, and have that contact in a more direct way. So the mediumship, more than the psychic, I would say, is probably the key. And then obviously, you know, exposing yourself in a different way without fear and sort of like um, making yourself ready uh, for that kind of experience. A lot of shamans in the jungle, um, they do have contact. Um, and, you know, it's a very common thing. And, they, you know, these shamans, obviously, they're also mixed this information. You've got to be vibrating at least and working with that energy and that frequency. Bruce, let's go
0: back to talking about the recent videos that were released by the military and the comments made by the military about them the Tic Tac uh, UFO, all those things. Do you think there's any provocation when we start following or filming these craft? Do you think it's something that may result at some point in some type of retaliation?
1: I think there's a risk of that. And I think this is another, another thing that hasn't been discussed a lot, especially in the media, the mainstream media coverage, is that, look, you know, if these objects, if there was a whole fleet of these objects above, you know, a naval fleet and that they were essentially being ignored right that there to me that suggests there is an unofficial official policy where the admiral and the senior staff of this you know flotilla they didn't actually arrange any engagement or any attempt to really directly monitor these craft. you know obviously it was just kind of in the background that you know, there was an awareness that they were there now it was actually a sort of fair a more junior officer that sent up a plane to intercept and to see what it was now, that's kind of a funny situation. Because you've got to think that there's no way that the Admiral and the senior officers are not aware, right, that they have these things up there. Right. So why aren't, why aren't they interacting with them? And I'd say the reason for that is because at the higher levels, it's known that if you send up planes, that first of all, you will be outpaced. You cannot do anything about these craft. And the second thing, it shows up a military inferiority. And the last thing you're wanting to do is look like you don't control your own skies. And thirdly, what if you do provoke a military response from them and you're completely unable to fight them? I mean, it essentially makes it clear that someone else controls the skies and that you don't have aerial superiority. which is the last thing the U.S. Um, want is to demonstrate to the world that they, they lack, you know, the air superiority, which has been seminal to being the number one power in the world, right? So I, I think that there is an underlying idea that both that they don't want to show up that there is that issue. And secondly, yeah, the risk of what if you do something that provokes a deadly response? And, you know, and also we've noticed that with this anomalous phenomena, if the objects come near to our technologies, you know, even to cars and also to planes, there are cases where, you know, the engines fail, the equipment fails. Now, so you, you need not even be a completely hostile act just going too near may take your plane out of the sky, right? So there seems to be some sort of energy field. So I think that there is definitely a sense of caution that the last thing they want is, you know, planes dropping out of the skies.
0: Do we have any confirmed cases where we can point to at least enough evidence to uh, uh, remove reasonable doubt that uh, a military aircraft has been downed by an alien craft?
1: Yes, actually, there have been a couple of cases. I think there's a... I don't know the name of the guy. There was a famous US case where, yeah, it was a test pilot or something. He went into intercept and then shortly after the intercept, he yeah, crashed. And so they, they didn't know the full details, but it seemed that he attempted to intercept and the plane basically ended up destroyed. Now, we don't know whether that was a, a direct attempt to down the craft. or Again, as I, I would speculate, perhaps he simply got too close and the energy field disabled the plane which is quite possible because we have so many accounts of you know cars stalling when they get near to these things that they produce a very powerful electromagnetic field and that you know that essentially it's like almost like an emp you know knocking out our technologies so there's a problem there. so we can't say for sure whether those kind of events would be deliberate hostility or it may simply be the object becomes curious you know and it, it gets too close and then you find that you're or your systems go down. And these in the case of ships as well, you know, ships, planes, and um, cars, vehicles, all sorts of things that have been disrupted by the presence of these anomalous aerial phenomena and anomalous aerial vehicles. So definitely, yes, there have been instances, And others where planes have just disappeared. So we don't know, again, whether they were taken down, whether they crashed, whether they were literally, you know, abducted in some sense. But there have been close encounters that ended up with the planes either disappeared or crashed. The U.S.
0: was very, very active in um, sending craft outside of the Earth's orb, or Earth's atmosphere uh, leading up to the moon landings and uh, then kind of backed off a little bit, then got active again with the space shuttle uh, and then backed off. And it's been about nine years until the U.S. just now launched uh, with a, sp- a private company partnership, SpaceX, um, a craft with two astronauts aboard. Do you see any correlation between... Um, the activities of any nation, whether it's, it's the U.S. or Russia or whomever, or China, uh, putting craft into into space and an increase or decrease or any kind of corresponding change in the number of UFO sightings or uh, UFO activity?
1: Well, you can't help but wonder whether they have some kind of awareness of another player at the table who's out there, and whether connected with the moon. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of stories of did the astronauts encounter... Um, something on the moon. You know that that story has been floating around, you right. know, obviously for a very long time. Um, and also, there's been cases of remote viewing. I like we know that um, is it Swan. I think one of the guys who was involved with Project Stargate, Ingo Swan. He, you know, he claimed to have been involved in remote viewing the moon for a secret department of the military that, uh, and that there were structures there. Uh, so, I mean, could it be that there there is a connection that you know there's an attempt to go back there and see. What else is on our moon? You know, is this part of this race for the lunar surface? I mean, you know, of course, we end up then into that kind of gray area type conspiracies where, you know, obviously we don't have any evidence because we can't go to the moon. But, you know, that there is the possibility that something was detected there and that there's an attempt to go back. But if the other stories that, you know, has been warned off the moon have any truth to them, then it makes you wonder, it, you know, what would what would make us brave enough to go back if that was really true, right? You know, that so is it provoking something from from these other uh, entities? So, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of a strange area. It could be related to it. But then again, I mean, we seem to be happily heading towards a, spe- a new space race and a kind of... Um, I guess a gold a gold rush in space, like right? really. I mean, there's gonna be attempts to mine asteroid asteroids and to to mine the moon, put a lunar base, you know, all these things are ahead and are really why we have the Space Force, which a lot of people have in the UFO community have suggested it's to fight some alien war or you know to deal with the ufo problem that this is a kind of secret cover for it but it's very obvious that there's going to be a space race for the moon and for asteroids right so that to me is what it's really about but could it have a secondary aspect to do with these visitors it's certainly possible um, that that could be you know there could be a clandestine second team within the space force you know that is to do with that but we would struggle to to learn about that right it'd be so deep secret
0: we're talking tonight with Bruce and Daniela Fenton. Uh, we're talking about much of their work. Bruce has written a book called Exogenesis Hu- Hybrid Humans A Scientific History of Extraterrestrial Genetic Manipulation. And he's also got a book or a series of books called The Forgotten Exodus. Tell me about that series of books. That is more than one, isn't it? Is it a series of ebooks?
1: Uh-huh. I've got um, the first ones out. The second one is mostly written and I need to gotcha. put out, which is to do with the – well, actually, it's about America. The first book um, is The Into Africa Theory, and that tackles a rewrite of the out-of-Africa and recent out-of-Africa paradigm uh, with a focus on – it covers a lot of so the Neanderthals, the Denisovans, all of that, and but also particularly – a rewrite of recent out of Africa and the story that um, 60,000 years ago, people in Africa colonized Eurasia and then Australia and America. I, I argue, and I would say quite convincingly with a lot of evidence, that in fact that that event is an out of Australia event and that we colonize, well, they colonized from there Eurasia and America and the, in fact Africa. Africa certainly had people there, but that this colonizing event. 60,000 years ago is from Australia. And so it's really a, re, a complete rewrite of one of these holy cows in science, which has just been dogmatically accepted. I mean, you'll find articles always churn out with that same first line saying 60,000, well, 50, 60 or 70,000, depending on which one you look at. Again, this date issue should flag up to people that there's something wrong, because you'll see articles will say, yeah, 60,000 years ago, and others will say 80,000 years ago, it's because and when you see that, you should question is because it's wrong. Uh, They can't give you a fixed date because there's different bits of data that don't fit. Um, And essentially, uh, I went into a deep dive into the academic papers and found that there's enough evidence now to replace that paradigm and show that, in fact, uh, Eurasian people originate from a, a movement from northern Australia, into East Asia 60,000 years ago. So, and then the second book from that is to do with America. It's the rewriting of the story of the colonizing, well, okay, we could say colonizing or migrating into America. Um, and that that actually happened way earlier than 15 to 20,000 years ago with the current estimates that you find evidence of early modern humans down in Brazil going back potentially 40, 50, 60,000 years ago. And that there's just, no way that fits the conventional story. And that's why there's a lot of pushback on that. And the Brazilian scientists have been kind of sidelined because they're going against, you know, the established paradigm. And anytime you do that, you find yourself, you are frozen out of the conversation or a lot of hostility because you're damaging other people's careers or their standing, you know. Um, rewrite in the human migrations story and also the other hominins, the Neanderthals and Tennisovas and the changes that are going on in our understanding of these early humans. And Danielle, you
0: co-authored, you work with um, Bruce on some of this as well.
2: Yeah, I mean Bruce does more the research and, and the writing and I sort of you know blend in whatever information I get or ideas and we sort of like put the pieces of the puzzle together so we both have different aspects of the work that come together and produce the books.
0: Tonight we're talking with Bruce and Daniela Fenton about their work. Bruce has a new book out called Exogenesis Human Hybrids or Hybrid Humans, A Scientific History of Extraterrestrial Genetic Manipulation. Uh, to get this conversation started off, Bruce, define for me what a hybrid human is.
1: Imaged, I think, comes straight to mind is, you know, a person that is essentially half alien or half gray alien often, because we hear these stories of, you know, um, abductions, um, genetic manipulation, uh, hybrid children, right? This is a kind of like a popular meme in the topic um also it comes out of the accounts of you know experiences and people that have the kind of production experience i'm not necessarily referring to that so when i'm talking about hybrid humans in the book it's a little bit different i'm not saying that you know there has been an absolute fusion you know where (laughs) you're half alien and half human Uh, what i mean is that there is a degree of hybridization within the very early at humans, that there's been some additions of genetic information, but also have been a lot of modification that's been done by actually manipulating the genome. So it's a little bit of hybridization, but really, I'm, I'm kind of looking more at a meddling, you know, in the same way that now our science, you know, with CRISPR gene editing technologies, we can meddle In in animal, right, without having to splice in a lot. We used to, we we do still splice in information. You know, they were taking DNA from a spider and they wanted to put in sheep, so sheep's wool would be stronger and all that. So that also is done in our technology. But we now know as well that you can go in and you can modify an organism directly by cutting strands of information off genes, copying them, putting them back in and stuff. So in my work, I'm talking more about a combination of a lot of that genetic engineering with a little bit of hybridizing where you take information from other species including potentially from extraterrestrial experience, you know species and add them into the genome to create a new being so it is a bit different from the classic image people may have conjured up when they hear hybrid humans you're expecting that we're talking about this half alien half human mix so it's, it's not that it's it's a bit different
0: if we rewind the clock Uh, To the beginning of life, far before the appearance of Mm -hmm. man or primates or mammals or anything that would be walking around the planet. Um, You know, the current consensus, I think, would be that, uh, you know, there was some primordial soup that was struck by lightning and then things started swimming around in it. Uh, Your ideas approach this a little differently.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I do cover the the origins of life on this planet in the book. Now, again, exogenesis itself is is a term which is means panspermia. And if people aren't familiar with panspermia, it's the idea that life comes from outside. You know, so exogenesis rather than a genesis just of life on this planet. I mean, exo is sort of outside, is you know the space aspect to it. So it's a genesis involving a space. Uh, panspermia is a model in which we have life out there in the universe, and that that life. Essentially, you say infects planets that you have spores or viruses, bacteria that are carried on comets or carried on dust, Um, and conversely, then you have also directed panspermia, which is the, the the theory in which some kind of intelligence is out there deliberately directing the seeds of life onto planetary surfaces. So you've got a few different models. We've kind of on this planet for one reason or another we've largely adopted either abiogenesis, which is the idea that somehow, as you say, life evolves from chemical and geological processes, uh, that there's you know some kind of energy, whether lightning or, or just heat from thermal vents or something, and that you know over enough time, that's led to early types of simple life. Now, that's just the favoured theory at the moment, but I say favoured hypothesis, because I think all of these... Are just kind of hypothesis. We can't really test them. Right. Um, nobody's proved a biogenesis, um, but equally valid are panspermia and directed panspermia. And then, of course, you have creationist views that this could be just God coming in, uh, you know, making life, fashioning planets, fashioning, you know, the first organism. So, all of those four are the main potential. Models for how life emerges, and, and none of them are truly, you know, provable in terms of the science we have now, right? So, that you can say there's a valid argument to make for any of them, and that we just have preferred the abiogenesis story in modern Western. Uh, kind of developed cultures obviously there are indigenous cultures who don't hold with that and they say that you know it was from outside there's quite a lot of cultures that believe life's from outside and others that believe it was a you know a god creating us so it's still an area in flux because nobody can really win that debate i i strongly urge towards directed panspermia i think it best explains it for a couple of different reasons one being that we now know that life appears incredibly early on this planet Uh, Rather than it taking a billion years of random events, you know, random chemistry and geology and eventually life appearing somehow, it turns out that the best evidence points to the simple life forms appearing around about 4.5 billion years ago, and the planet is 4.6 billion years old. So it's almost as soon as the crust has cooled and, you know, that there's the, the, the potential for life to survive, that life appears. Right, that It doesn't look quite so random and yeah. you know, over such a long period, right? That fits better with life is already in some sense present, either rains down in a viral swarm or, or somebody has directed life to the surface of the planet. And that, that's particularly why I think that now directed panspermia is looking stronger and stronger. It's just happening too fast.
0: So by the use of the word directed, you're obviously talking about an intelligent uh, source mm-hmm. uh, sending um, whatever these ingredients are to this planet to have them take yeah. root, take seed, and uh, form the foundation of life here. Uh, is this a form of colonization in your mind?
1: It's almost like cosmic farming. I mean, if <laughs> you think of it that way, but yeah. you've got planets that you know potentially could have life on them, and that then somebody is kind of choosing them say, hey, well, you know, that planet's in the Goldilocks zone. You know, that's in the right place. You know, let's direct some seeds of life there so they will take root. And also I sort of consider DNA as a alien terraforming technology. If you think about it, if you can just fire this stuff at a planet and over time it will form a biosphere on a dead world, right? So you can literally terraform a planet. So if you're a civilization that has existed for, say, hundreds of millions or billions of years, you can think in terms like that. Then you think, well, okay, we'll seed this planet and we'll come back to it if we need it, you know, or we'll monitor it and get something from it that we want, you know, just because you don't know exactly why they're doing it. But certainly if there is something about DNA and, you know, different organisms that have interest to them that they could literally be farming in the way that we farm a garden for particular things we don't eat the weeds but we eat the carrots and there's certain things that we want from our garden and other things that are just happening in the background right and it may well be quite like that that there are things that are of interest intelligences and that from within that garden that they utilize you know certain elements of it just from during the evolution okay hey, that's useful to us we'll extract some of that Right, so there may be something like that happening. Um, also, we've detected some direct evidence of this because a few years back there was a project which involved having a was it there's a I think a balloon or something up in the upper atmosphere with a you know the ability to capture incoming particles of dust and stuff. And what they found was that the detector was impacted by this small metal sphere that was kind of made out of these really tough alloys. And that it had cracked, and there was this organic goo coming out of it. And now there's scientists involved in this. Um, uh, well, there's a guy called Professor Chandra Wickramasinghe, who's probably the most famous panspermia theorist, and he's he's kind of collaborates with the team that found this, and that they felt that this may well be one of these seeds that's been fired out by somebody and that infects planets. And there was one of them was, you know, it just happened, they were got lucky, and one of these things impacted into their detector. But, you know, they have pictures of this. It, so it's not something I'm just saying, it's, you know, that they've told a story about. I and mean, you can, people can go away and Google this. They look for, you know, a metal sphere, you know, detecting the upper atmosphere, panspermia or organic goo or something. You, you will find that there's images of this little metal sphere with this goo leaking out. So it's not just an entirely, you know, abstract idea. It may well be that we have one of these, Seeds, and we literally you know, do have the direct evidence.
0: So, if we fast forward a little bit and we start talking about humans as we know them now, where did the intersection of the development of uh, species in its ne- in the natural state and the introduction of maybe some alien DNA or manipulation mm-hmm. occur, and what was the result?
1: Well, from my view, and again, Chandra and his team, and these, you know, a lot of these. The theorists on that side who sort of concur in some respects is that it looks like there's been various leaps in evolution at different points in prehistory. I mean, we have like the Cambrian explosion, where suddenly all kinds of organisms appeared that don't have precursors in the fossil record. And that's always been a big issue, particularly for the um, creationists. Or something. They've always sort of brought that one up and said, well, you know, if it's all just random mutations and natural selection where the hell do all these creatures suddenly appear from in the cambrian um and there's you know there's responses to that but so far none that really convincingly explain this um and chandra and his his kind of guys have said well look you know, what this could be is that there are rains of retroviruses that infect life on the planet and bring in new information because really a virus is information you know, dna is information rna is information and that these things infect bring in new information and cause radical jumps in evolution. Now, I I agree with them, I think that probably is happening, but then you've got the question, are these all entirely random? Are we randomly having um, viral rains, or is somebody seeding modified retroviruses into the upper atmosphere, and that these then rain down onto life, infecting it? Because that's a great way, if you want to modify a whole load of species at once, you don't want to keep coming down here and literally having to go in the lab, you know, and one by one modifying right. creatures. Right? right. You know what I mean? That's a that's a kind of a crazy way to do it. Now, if you can just just pass through the atmosphere, you know, and just release a kind of almost like a chemtrail of of um, viruses, right? That have been modified to infect specific organisms, you can you can essentially, you know, just have the whole planet having them rain down. And there's a lot of people don't realize this, but the viruses are raining down on us all the time. And you know, when you walk around in the day, you're breathing in viruses that are raining down in fact our immune system is strengthened merely by walking around outside partly because you are continually exposed to these viruses that are raining down right and that's something people aren't really aware of so they don't always cause any disease you know infect you in any sense but some of them will you know some most don't but you are getting that interaction with that viral information okay so that's one thing. So I think that's been happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I also do believe that we've had direct events where, yes, you know, there has been uh, landings and direct manipulation and that there has been a presence of intelligences here who have, for different kinds of reasons, have modified the primates. And this is where I'm, I can't say about all other animals because maybe there's been direct modification of some other animals, right? But the focus for us to cause as humans is humans. So I've looked more closely at that. Uh, and what we find is that there's definitely evidence that at the beginning of the story, our, when we split from primates, there's a whole slew of kind of, um, of anomalous changes, particularly in terms of the brain and some of our physiology, that uh, Marcus is different from all the other primates, you know, that there's hundreds of differences to do with the brain, for a start, uh, rather than just being a completely random, you know, if you think about random, random mutations. It's funny how when you look, what you find the differences between us and the other primates, are mostly to do with things like the brain and stuff. So they're not random in the way that we'd think, you know, oh, it's your kidney, it's your liver, <laughs> it's this bone. It seems like it concentrates a lot in the brain. But then you also have around about 1.8 million years ago, there is another jump that occurs with... Brain structure and specific genes, where we become Homo erectus. Essentially, Homo erectus kind of appears as another as a big leap from its predecessors that have very just chimp-like brains, really. So there's another big, there's a big jump then. And I personally, I I talk about this in the book a little bit. I believe that that probably is a direct modification of a presence that's on Earth modifying. Hominin, and that then we get another one of these at seven hundred and eighty thousand years ago, which is the one that's really at the core of the book, where we have a whole load of changes which occur, which are basically the formative event for Homo sapiens. So, really, for me, if someone says when the Homo sapiens appear, I would say seven hundred and eighty thousand years ago. Now, you'd hear from a lot of conventional scientists might say well we think first of all it was 200,000 now they're saying well 300 maybe 400 and you know even 500,000 you wait you will live to see them say 780,000 right <laughs> because I'll tell you why is because we used to go mainly on the bones and the fossils and the physiology right so when we talked about species you're looking at certain traits in the fossil record now we've began to understand that modern humans are a hybrid of various other humans, including Neanderthals, Denisovans, and others. We have genetic information from all of them, right? So it's become hard and hard to say who our ancestors were. So now they're saying, well, actually, probably a whole load of different sets of fossils from around 500,000 years ago represent different ancestral lineages that are part of our story, right? But if you go beyond just the physical anatomy and the bones and you look at the genetics, Right, which of course now we're going to we're in a genetic revolution. If you look at the genetics, you find that the seminal event is 780,000 years ago, and that's when the split occurs that leads to Neanderthals, Denisovans, and modern humans. So it's inevitable that we're going to end up taking that story back to 780,000, and that's the beginning of Homo sapiens.
0: And these these splits or these uh, events that cause these splits. Uh, this is a product of the viral rains that you were talking about? Is that how this is accomplished by the... uh this case. Yeah, okay. And are those viral rains constant, or are they... Just in
1: this one, no. Of oh, oh, the viral rains. Yeah, is, is, that, that, is that a
0: specific event, or is that something that's always happening? Uh, in, in an intelligent way.
1: You also have it... In, yeah, no, in an intelligent way, I'd say no. So, yeah, you have it always happening, but not necessarily in, in an intelligent way. Although that's hard to say. Of course, I can't dismiss that that could be an ongoing thing all the time, right? There could be, you know, for every few years or every so many years, perhaps some different material is put into the upper atmosphere. And like, we, we would be hard-pressed to know for sure, right, if whether that's happening, particularly if it's not aimed at us. Because what if the other animals, what if there's a targeted virus for other animals right. and that they're getting modified? So so we wouldn't be able to just dismiss that. So that could be happening all the time as well. But what what we see also is these punctuated events where every now and again there's been mass changes. Like, for example, around 150 to 200,000 years ago, there is a, a strange event occurs, now, a few a couple of years back, there was a few articles came out about how the DNA barcodes suggested, which is a part of the mitochondrial DNA, suggested that there was something that occurred around 150 to 200,000 years ago, which affected some like 70% of species, because it looked like this, this particular part of the DNA only went back to then. They couldn't find a clear ancestral link from beyond that. So it was almost like there'd been a big jump. Um, now, they, they theorized it could have been to do with a, some sort of bottleneck caused by a catastrophe, or it could have been a, you know, a mutation event or something. And I asked the guy, because I do reach out to scientists if I think things are interesting, uh, could it be like the panspermia type event, you know, with these viruses infecting life? And he said, yeah, that would be a possible solution to it. Right. So, again, these aren't things that are just uh, sort of wackadoodle ideas. I mean, you know, it, it would be able to explain it, this incursion of new information and a mutation event in sort of 70 percent of the life forms on the planet. So we do get these the, these events that suddenly occur and that are noticed, you know, that our scientists are finding this times where there's strange leaps. So I think that every now and again, there's a major incursion of information but that we may have a background level of this happening, you know, all the time. But then every now and again, you know, there's a modified virus that's pumped into the atmosphere for a a bigger leap for some reason. And also, I think there are more precise events where, you know, you've literally got um, intelligence, you know, entities that are here and that have modified, in particular, the human line uh, being, I suppose, in some respects, uh, a, a unique kind of creature on this planet being that we are a bipedal large brain um hominin that has the potential to wield tools and you know and obviously that goes back a very long way millions of years that we've been working with tools. so we, we're quite unlike other creatures and we so we seem to be in the focus of modification compared to any of the other animals
0: and i guess one of the major questions at this point would be why what is the goal of whatever it is that is manipulating uh us or other species on this planet. You mentioned, uh, you know, an, an idea for the panspermia could be um, could be uh, setting up a farming, you know, planet. What, uh, mm-hmm. you know, farming planets for for the future. But why why mess with the species? Uh, what's what do
1: you think the end goal is? Sure. I mean, I I talk a bit in the book about this because I do have a couple of um, arguments I make about this. First of all, there's information that I I'm, my research is kind of based on information that was recovered from what I consider to be an alien artifact. Now, that's an extraordinary claim, of course, uh, but the information that I utilize has come to me by somebody who was in contact with an artifact which provided information to them, and in that information includes some quite specifics about that, about that topic, about a lot of topics, really. But one of the things that came out of this is the claim that, that early homo sapiens were created for particular reasons one is it was a, actually it was a kind of a plan b that there was a, a colonization event a ship that came here a ship that was destroyed in orbit and left debris when I, mean, I have debris and de- debris has been well studied but there's an argument between in science they don't recognize what this debris is but anyway i, I there's physical debris from their craft and just
0: quickly let me just interrupt for a second is that debris sure. that you've written about on your website
1: uh, yeah i've written about it on there and it's you know covered in depth in the book and you know she covered that topic a bit it's called australite tectite. okay right and that is a well-studied material that people can look online and they'll they'll find websites to discuss and, and the hundreds of papers that have been written about it so it's not saying i had to go People say you had it tested it's like i didn't have to there's hundreds of papers on it because it's a mystery in science right it's a mystery that's been stretching on for about 100 years there's, so we have this, information that dates back to 780,000 years ago. And just keep in mind that that's also the date for the genetic anomalies that lead to Homo sapiens. It's also the date for the, the last geomagnetic reversal. It's also the date for a multi-directional asteroid impact event, including an object the size of the one that eradicated the dinosaurs uh, 780,000 years ago. So, I mean, 780,000 years ago is the most extraordinary period that most people have never thought about, because there's actually an incredible number of major anomalous events underway at that point. You know, you've got an object in space that breaks up, rains down material across the planet. You know, you've got all these impacts, you've got the changes in Homo sapiens, and you've got this magnetic reversal. So it's like, hang on a minute, what's going on 780,000 years ago?
0: Right. Yeah, that's a lot to um, coincidentally be happening. <laughs> it's a lot of coincidences, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Um Talk a little bit about our understanding of genetics as as our DNA science has, progresses here, and we start to be able to read these codes and look at these things and start to understand what they mean. How much of what you're talking about now is starting to become revealed through that science?
1: Yeah, this has been crucial because we knew, even you know, going back a few decades, it was known that around about 800,000 years ago, the human brain goes into a, a sudden you know, acceleration in terms of size and changes in structure. And that was, we could tell that from the skulls that were found in the fossil record. So science already knew that there was something really unexplainable going on. It was considered anomalous because this is just as very, you can see it on the curve. If people look up, you know, human cranial capacity change um, graphs, you'll see there's a graph and it shows how suddenly it just zooms upwards. And so there was an awareness of that. Now, of course, what we didn't have, when this was first detected was the genetics Uh, having that we're able to now actually look in the genome and see was anything strange happening you know in that period and was there anything to do with the brain that looks unusual or or, you know anomalous and it turns out yes there are there's a whole slew of things i mean in particular there's the fusion of chromosome 2 now that's been floating around as a topic in the ancient aliens um, sphere for quite a while and in fact um, we've got it's been it's been brought up in the ancient aliens TV show. Uh, it also was written about by Lloyd Pye, who unfortunately was he was a researcher who unfortunately passed of cancer a few years back, uh, probably most famous for the Star Child skull. Um but he used to talk about that as well. but chromosome two, we didn't really have a lot of specifics on what it what happened then, you know what it did or when it happened. you know, so it was just another of these anomalies that was floating around and people would say it seemed like maybe an alien engineered event, right? Obviously, the mainstream scientists weren't saying that because they're not going to. Right. Um, but but what's changed is that now we've had people looking a lot closer at that um, that strangely fused chromosome. And it turns out that it fuses on the site of an active gene for the brain. It has implications also for the immune system, the reproductive system. Um, it, it seems to convey remarkable benefits. I mean, there's, this is explained by a few different scientists have said, look, you know, Fritz have gone from us having All humans having 48 chromosomes to today where all humans have 46 chromosomes unless you have you know a random occasional anomaly in in individuals right that essentially all humans today have 46 that that means you've had a total replacement and to explain that it says you need to have had a few different factors but one of them is that the changes are so beneficial that they led to that group doing better than all other humans on the planet and essentially becoming the dominant population and interbreeding until all that remains is the 46 chromosome variant. And he said, for that to happen, it must be conveying remarkable benefits, okay? So, if, and that's kind of strange because usually if there's a fusion, when there's a natural fusion they occasionally occur, usually what you have is negative or neutral impact right? It is not something that conveys benefits. It's an error, right? So it's usually caused either serious problems or at best neutral for you, right? So this is, again, is, is really anomalous. And there was a guy, a British biologist who's looked closer at it, and he wanted to find out when did it happen? Because that's a crucial thing. So you can say, okay, it's very strange, but but when did it happen? Right. And what he found is, if you look at it, the Denisovans, the Neanderthals, they also have it. So straight away, you then you know, well, it has to happen before the split with us and them, because they have this same fusion. Now, in recent years, we've realized that this split wasn't 400,000 years ago, which was for quite a while was fought by the Neanderthals, was that this was fairly recent. It's been pushed back, and they now know it was more like seven hundred fifty to 800,000 years ago, which obviously in the middle of that is 780. And, and this dating on the other side, you wanted to see, you know, okay, so how far back did it go if it didn't you know if it wasn't in recent times we know it has to be at least 750,000 years ago or so could it have been when we split from the other primates and so that, that's that always been another hypothesis and so he looked at it at the chemical level and again i'm not capable i'm not a you know a molecular biologist I mean, so he looked at it and what he found is you can date it fairly approximately by looking at when did the rate of evolutionary changes take far the middle parts of chromosomes for reasons that probably people can logically fathom. You know, you've got quite a stable area of a chromosome in the middle. Um, right. So what, what he wanted to see was when did that slow down? So that would be when the fusion happened. And he, he basically calculated as being somewhere around 750,000 years ago. So in other words, you've limited it to the beginning of the split with Neanderthals and Denisovans. So it seems to be the key characteristic of large-brained humans, the Neanderthals, the Denisovans, and us. And it happens right on that time when we begin diverging, so that, that meshes precisely with if you are experimenting on a, a hominin population. Because the other thing as well that the scientists have pointed out is that this likely happened in a very small, isolated group, and then became persistent in that population before spreading outwards due to interbreeding. A small, isolated group is exactly what you'd have in a test group, or a, you know, a modification event, and that then once it's stable in that population. They are kind of released out back into the wild to spread that information. So you have the exact fingerprints of what you'd expect to see if someone had modified us, you know, in a a kind of lab setting, and then had released us out into the wild. These ancestors, right? So it's quite bizarre that you find that then the dating is right on there as that 780,000 years ago, when the brain changes were happening in the in the skull size and all that. So we now have both the physical and the genetic evidence coming together and really fitting so unbelievably well with this alien intervention hypothesis, which in the past lacked the evidence to support it.
0: Uh, Picking up on something you just said there, uh, talking about experimental and laboratory, do you think that the manipulators, those that were doing this manipulation, were trying different things with different populations to see what would stick?
1: Yeah, I think there was a degree of experimentation. I think that's why we do see this split, is that, you know, if you're doing experiments, you don't necessarily come off with the same result every time, and you may not even want to, right? Because you may want to have a few different variants and see which one does best, you know? So it actually makes a lot of sense to do that because with all the things that can happen in vast periods of evolutionary time, you don't know who's gonna do better, right? So if you create four or five large-brained human variants, they, one of them may do better and the others may die off and in fact you could say that's kind of what's happened because in the end there's only last man standing right There's the mong humans so but we are as well we are a kind of a hybrid of the others too so it's not a clear thing of that they all died off and that's that's often positives like what happened to the neanderthals what happened to the denisovans but we've also realized that we carry neanderthal and denisovan dna right so it seems that before everyone vanished, there had been interbreeding as well. That All of these different populations were able to interbreed, which is also, again, is a characteristic of being the same species. So whereas the mainstream say we have all these different species, you know, that we have the Neanderthals as a different species. Well, hang on a minute. We had children with the Neanderthals, right. right? We had children with Denisovans. So what kind of different species are we talking about here? What I would say is that we have Homo sapiens, and then there are subspecies, and I'm not the only one to say this, you know, some some of the academics agree that we should be talking about Homo sapiens neanderthalensis, Homo sapiens denisova, and Homo sapiens sapiens, right? That we're essentially all subspecies of Homo sapiens or races within the Homo sapiens um, family, because we all had children with each other. So we were different, but not so different that we couldn't interbreed, right? So it looks like that we all had our own unique niche, and that eventually we merged together in some respects to give... Just the modern human and I, I think modern humans have only existed for um, somewhere in the region of 70 to 120 thousand years what we think of as fully anatomically behaviorally modern humans I don't really believe we are a, a separate lineage in the sense that they were in the animal in I think we are the remnants of various other lineages that have you know came together over time and we are the final product of all of this interweaving different lineages of humans and we are the the hybrid of all of them and that that's going to be shown more and more as we find the bones and we get the DNA. Every time we get some new DNA, we find that we're carrying it, right? Because they find these, what they call ghost populations, where they found DNA from fossils, where we don't know what the species was. We just find traces of unknown hominins in the DNA of Neanderthals and Denisovans. So we know there were other variants, but because we haven't found their their entire skeletons to be able to say, you know, what they looked like or where they were. We just call them ghost populations, but there were far more than just three of us out there, right? There was there was a lot. And it's, I think every time we find some, we realize that, well, we seem to be carrying some of this. So in the end, it may well be that we have to admit that we are something like a hybrid of 10 or 20 different huge going all the way back as modern humans, that, that we are the, the crowning result of all these different lineages.
0: Uh, when we first started talking about the origin of life on the planet you mentioned four possibilities one of them is, is obvious to most people it's a creationist uh, theory with a divine entity doing the creating um what are your thoughts on the idea that maybe these uh this this uh genetic gen- genetic manipulation might be the re- Result of a divine intervention, or maybe the aliens—if to use that word—that were the manipulators were Mm -hmm. a tool of a divine intervention.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say so. Look, if if you accept that there is a primal creative force behind the universe, behind all things, you know, the subatomic, everything, you know, if you said that behind that there is a consciousness that we would call, you know, God or Prime Creator or or whatever that people feel comfortable with assuming they have you know some comfort with these topics then you have to then really see everything as a manifestation of that and within that and ergo, every living or conscious unit within it is a tool of that divine presence right so so then you i think that's a logical extension of it once if you accept that there is a primal consciousness and there is a kind of a, a divine then you also have to accept that so if people say well you know if this is this isn't god this was aliens it's well yes and no because then you know who created them how did they get why did they come and you know aren't they driven by those same impetus that we have like spiritual thoughts or you know consciousness um, interacting with uh, with higher experiences and stuff so i do see them and in fact in the again in the source material i'm working with and it's i mean i I don't know if you want me to go into a little bit i can do in a bit about how that came about. But in the source material, it does actually say that they consider themselves to be doing the work of a higher presence and that they interact with non-physical beings that are in our terms, we'd think of as angelic and that they are coming here, believing they're on a kind of almost an evangelical outreach program. It sort of sounds like from the information that, you know, I'm working from, I would say that it sounds almost like that that they very much consider themselves to be doing, Kind of like like God's work in a in a cosmic sense, going out there to actually change this planet for the better, to kind of liberate the beings in this sector of space who they consider to be quite dark, and to try to upgrade this sector of space. And that there is a discussion of that that they do seem to want to to do work which we would kind of call like you know cosmic outreach on the behalf of what they believe to be uh, you know a higher presence. So I would say, yes, it is the tools of God. So it's not to say, well, then this isn't God doing the work. You can't really say that, because if God is behind all things, then all things are the tools of God, right?
0: We're almost out of time. Bruce, as you looked into this, learned about this, studied this, and wrote about it, did you see any reason to fear. I mean, on the surface, when you think about some master race manipulating us and and we're not really aware of it, there's a bit of a of a scary element to that. Do you see anything to fear?
1: Uh, yes and no. I mean, I don't think people should be in a state of fear about this stuff, but but certainly, you know, there's it could be intimidating, and there's aspects to it that are intimidating. Um, you've got a backstory where. You have essentially two different collectives of intelligences operating in our solar system. One that is fairly negative, at least in our terms. If we were to look at it, you know, from human views, we would consider one to be behaving in a way that is fairly negative, and one that behaves in a way that is more neutral to benevolent. Um, so, yes, if you've got a negative extraterrestrial presence or interdimensional presence, or whatever you want to how you want to look at that, it seems to. Crossover between the two interdimensional and cosmical, um, that is doing things at times that are not nice, right? And obviously, people you hear that in reports from people's encounters, you know, that they had encounters with things, entities, and stuff that were not pleasant. Um, so obviously, that does happen, and certainly, I can understand why that can frighten people, or even the idea of that can frighten people that suddenly something you know from beyond can reach into your life, and the same goes with right with the paranormal in general you know that as you know that you know people can be scared of the idea that you know your house could have a spirit presence or a ghost or that these things any time the unknown makes its way into someone's life it can be scary right and i get that and certainly there is the potential that that these cosmical powers you know could do things on a colossal scale to us but clearly they haven't so uh, from my view there's a more complex situation almost like a cold war Right. Where in theory, Russia or the US, whatever, could wipe out the planet right tomorrow, but we right. don't sit around poo- pooing our pants about it. You know, we're, <laughs> we're going on with our lives, you know, but that could happen. Right. Someone could tomorrow could just press the button, you know, or go nuts or and we live with that and we get used to it. And I think that's the same with the paranormal and with aliens and stuff that you can appreciate that something could happen that's incredibly, you know, nuts or could even eradicate life on the planet you know one of these species could come out of space right and just say we're wiping the planet clean there's not much we could do about that so it can be intimidating the idea of it but i think as humans we're very good at living with those kind of risks right That you know we, yes we could be wiped out and we somehow we adapt to that and we carry on so i think most people could get through that intimidating aspect of it um but i think it's the unknown element that frightens people whether well, we'd like to know you know who is it there and what do they want and all of that um the book offers a lot of that, and I, I think very briefly, how much time have we got left? We've got a couple of minutes. Yeah, I'd say very briefly that just for people that aren't aware, the, the way that this book has come about is that uh, a lady in Australia called Valerie Barrow, she came in contact with an artifact that's held by the Aboriginal people of the Northwest, called a Charinga, and this Object, I, well, it certainly matches up to what's called a Bracewell probe. Bracewell probe is a hypothetical alien probe that would be used to explore other star systems and can sit on a planet's surface acting as a sentinel, monitoring and relaying information and then making contact when a civilization reaches a certain level, say radio waves or space travel, Um, and that this artifact made contact with her. She received a complete download of information about a visitation to our planet uh, back 100,000 years ago, so I've dated to 780,000 years ago, involving a large ship that came here, broke up in the atmosphere, involving a a deliberate bombardment of our planet, which I've also found out about and dated to 780,000 years ago, and, of course, this is the engineering of humans, by survivors from that ship and again that dates to 780 thousand years ago so all I've done is I've taken information that came from that object which I consider to be as I say like a Bracewell probe uh, an alien planet which exists and has been recovered and that the information from it has panned out you know I've used that as the guide behind this and it's revealed this whole lost story of human history um, and that artifact to my knowledge is still exists and still being held by the Aboriginal people um, so this is unlike any other ancient aliens type you know research or story uh, in that not only did the information come about from an artifact not from channeling conventional channeling um but also that i've been able to validate the information And, and again i'm objective in that this wasn't me that had that encounter i've taken her information and i've thought okay if this is real can i track down the physical evidence behind the claims and it's been like yes 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 you know i found the debris from this silica craft is described, described as a crystalline craft and found the silica debris. Um, it describes this impact event. It turns out in 2015, German geologists found a well, team have found that there was a multiple impact event 780,000 years ago. And, and then also turns out the genetic side of it, the conventional dating has now slid back to 780,000 years ago. So this is the first ever case. Of a direct contact that can be proven by science where we have an artifact that's made contact has given us accurate information and the information has panned out proving that we are an engineered species it's powerful stuff um
0: bruce where is the book available
1: yeah, it can be I know that most shops are closed at the moment, but if there is a bookstore open, people can go into it and request it if it's not on the shelves, but also you know, online at any good bookstore's website, um, certainly on you know Borders and Amazon and all the big um you know book dealing sites, they all will be able to supply it to you. If you want a signed copy, people can email direct to me, which is Bruce at BruceFenton.info, and that would be shipped from the UK. So the post and package on that. Um, Other than that, they can follow our work, of course, on the websites on brucefenton.info. There's a free sample of the book on there. So people can have a look first at the first chapters. Um, And of course, we've got hybridhumors.net where there's some articles that relate to book content.
0: And uh, before we go to Daniela here, I just want to remind folks, the book is called Exogenesis, Hybrid Humans, A Scientific History of Extraterrestrial Genetic (laughs) Manipulation. Daniela, where can people find out more about the services that you offer and what do you offer remotely for people?
2: Um, My website is um, danielafenton.com, and I offer readings, I offer mediumship, I offer shamanic counseling and past life regressions, and also a bit of mentorship and coaching.
0: And all of that can be done uh, remotely?
2: Well, it can all be done remotely. There's no issue, especially with past life regressions. A lot of people ask me, you know, if it can be done. And as long as they can hear my voice, then they're good to go.
0: Perfect. And again, the website is her name, Danielle, daniellafenton.com. Thank you both so much for being here tonight. I know you had to get up extra early uh, to do this. And I really, really appreciate that effort. And I know the audience does as
1: well. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, it's really It's really us. cool it was really good chat. Yeah.